2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, or Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of, the, of God, whose name is called by Hashem, the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah and Aio, the son of Abinadab, drove the new cart. It looks like Ohio, huh? It looks like you want to say Ohio, but it's Ahio. And they brought it all out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanied the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place. In the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it, then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself 
today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maid servants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. In the New Testament, Paul wrote to the book of Galatians and he said, stand fast. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, he said, you stand fast therefore in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. And don't be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. The reason why this becomes important is because there are so many things that want to capture our attention, our affection, and none is more dangerous than legalism. Where do you stand with Christ? Because your standing in Christ will be the place where your your freedom really begins and ends. When you begin to understand your freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ, something will happen inside of your heart. You will grow in confidence in the things of God for your life. Earlier today, I read the story of a man named Robert Slatkin who lost his wallet. And it was Christmas time. And he was walking through one of the major department stores in New York. And he had a wallet. And in his wallet, he had $5,000 in cash. He misplaced the wallet. And after searching frantically, he gave up. And he began to walk back to his New York apartment. And not long afterwards, he received a call from the American Express saying that his wallet had turned up in the lost and the found. And the girl who found his wallet was a girl named Sandy Castro. Quote, I picked it up and saw all of the cash, Sandy Castro, who found Slatkin's wallet while she was shopping with her fiancé, told the Post. Quote, I felt panicked for him and felt like I needed to get it back to him as soon as possible. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you found a wallet with $5,000 in cash, what would you do? You know, most of us want to say in our heart, well, I would want to do what's right. And I hope that you would want to do what's right. And David wants to do what's right. Have you ever wanted to do something that was right and everything that you wound up doing seemed to turn out wrong? David desires to do what's right. Remember what's happened. David wants to reestablish the name and worship of Jehovah in the capital. He has become the king. He has captured Jerusalem. Until Saul, the Jews had stumbled in their walk with God. And now David wants to make the country great again for the Lord. David wants to establish the name and worship of Jehovah in the conscience of the nation. What kind of a person are you? You know, people talk about reputation and character. Someone once said, 
that reputation is what people think you are and character is what you really are. Character is what you do in the dark when no one else is looking. Paul, when he gave his speech in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, and he was rehearsing the history of uh, Israel, he says, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And if we've learned anything from our study in the life of David, we've repeated over and over again, David in his imperfections is still a person who wants to honor God. He wants to pursue God. And that's clearly what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. In spite of imperfections, in spite of inconsistencies, in spite of all of the things that we do, we still want to honor God. Remember, A person is a person after God's own heart when they're willing to pursue God, when they love God. The person who is the person after God's own heart is the person who, when he or she sins, is quick to confess their sin and repent of their sin. And David is a man after God's own heart, not because he's a perfect man, because he's an imperfect man who wants to do what God wants him to do. Let me help you with something. Do you know the difference between precept and principle? A precept is a rule or a law that is very specific. A principle is a general guideline. A precept would be like a sign on the highway. You see the sign and it says speed limit 35 miles per hour. The sign is being very specific, telling you what to do. A principle would be a sign that says, caution, drive carefully. Now, when you have a precept that says, slow down to 35, and you have a principle that says, drive carefully, you can imagine that in the subjective principle, a lot is left to your own imagination. Has it ever occurred to you that what you think is cautious is really not cautious at all? And that's the problem, how we interpret the principle. Sometimes immature Christians get confused about precepts and principles. They wander off God's highway of love and grace and they swerve into one of two ditches. The ditch of legalism, which is when my opinion becomes your obligation. And license, which is the ditch that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, under however circumstances I want. And when you veer off the road into legalism or into license, you take strange ruts that lead to disobedience. Maybe you're a man or a woman after God's own heart and you find yourself in a ditch. You've fallen into one of those two ditches and you need to get back on the road. You need to get back on track with God. And that's part of what this chapter is going to help us think about. (laughs) Look what it says again in verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. This is an army. And remember, he's going to move the Ark of the Covenant 
from Kiriath-Jerim or Baal-Judah and bring it to Jerusalem. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal-Judah to bring up from him the ark of God, whose name is called by Hashem, the name, the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Now to give you guys an idea, and I need you to kind of work through this in your mind. This particular place is about 8.3 miles north and east of Jerusalem. They've got to take this Ark of the Covenant about 8.3 miles and bring it back down to Jerusalem. And then in verse 3 it says, So they sent the Ark of, of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Aio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. Now again, David needs this thing transported. He enlists these two sons who have been around the Ark for a very long time. The place is Jerusalem. David is the king. The children of Israel have gotten far away from God. Now David wants to stir them back in the direction of serving God. Saul has neglected the things of God. He slaughtered the priest. He compromised the things of God. And during the time of David, the center of worship was not the individual believer so much as it was the tabernacle. And during the reign of Saul, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines and the tabernacle had been destroyed. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the tabernacle of the Lord was the place where the Ark should be kept. Now, the Ark represented, as well as contained, the presence of God. You have to understand just how important the ark is, not only in Hebrew culture and theology in the Old Testament, but you have to understand something very, very important. This particular piece of furniture represented the presence of God. The Lord's presence rested on this ark. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have James give you a little picture of the ark. He's going to bring it up in just a moment. The ark represented the power and the glory of God. It was called the presence of God. And the Lord's presence rested upon the ark. And so this is the place where the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory or light of God dwelt. And since it represented the presence of Jehovah, this little box was the holiest place on the entire planet Earth. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, the Lord said, There I will meet with you, and I will commune with you. The, the name ark meant box or chest, and it was a picture or a type of Jesus. It was made of wood, and it was covered with pure gold. Now, this box was about three feet long and about two feet deep. And inside, and it had, if you will, it's made of wood, it's covered with pure gold, and it has a special lid or cover. At either end of the, of the lid were two angels called the cherubim. And on the top of the box was a mesh made of pure gold. And this mesh made of pure gold was called the mercy seat. And 
Again, inside the box, there were three sacred objects. There was a golden jar that contained manna from heaven that had been found in the wilderness. In it was Aaron's budding rod that, that, that would flower instantaneously, which speaks of his priesthood. And then there was also the tablets of the covenants or the Ten Commandments. Now, a lot of the times you think about the Ten Commandments as as being the law, and, and so it is, but it's way more than that. These tablets and these covenants were God's marriage license to the people of Israel. Now, if you're married, your marriage license represents something very important to you. It's the terms of the covenant that you've entered into with your wife or with your husband. God promises that he's going to meet the people at this mercy seat. Now this may all sound weird and this may all sound strange, but God is going to use the symbols and the types to picture Jesus, just like the ark is made of wood and gold, the wood representing humanity and and the gold representing deity. This piece of furniture was absolutely holy and God demanded respect for his presence and his word. Alan Redpath writes, the one thing above all else which David wanted was that having assumed the responsibility of this position, he should know constantly the presence of God was with him. He could not rule in authority and power and victory without the Lord's guidance. It would be essential for every battle and for every judgment and for every action. And that David should receive and enjoy the continuous presence of Jehovah was vital. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Who doesn't want the presence of God in their life? Now remember for the Christian... The presence of God is in the person of Christ who lives in your heart. And so God gave specific instructions on how the ark should be built and how it should be carried and how it should be transported. And I want you to just turn very quickly to Numbers chapter 4. And remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 4, beginning in verse 1... Just very quickly, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi, by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. That's when you're officially old. All who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. This is it. Then they shall put it on a covering of badger skin, spread it over that a cloth entirely of blue and they will insert it in its poles on the table of the showbread they'll spread a blue cloth put the pitchers for pouring the showbread shall be on it they shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and it goes on and on and on and then in verse 11 it says on the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth cover it with badger skins insert poles in other words and then The whole idea is that there are rings and poles and that this particular 
piece of furniture was to be borne on the shoulders of the priests. There were rules for transporting the ark. Gold-plated poles through rings in the ark. The ark was designed to be carried. And you can find that in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. Excuse me, Exodus 25 verses 12 through 15. It was to be carried by the members of the Levites from the family of Koath. Now remember, the ark had been missing for some 70 years. The Philistines had captured it. After a series of embarrassing plagues, the Philistines decided to send the ark on the back of a cart. But guess what? They don't have access to the word of God. They've never read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. All they know is we want this thing out of here. And for decades, the ark was in the house of Abinadab. And now David wants to bring it back to the center of the new nation. Because remember, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing more important than the presence of God in the heart of the country. So David desires the presence of God. Good thing or bad thing? That's a good thing. David desires the worship of the true and the living God. He wants a renewed fear of Jehovah. He wants people to be concerned about the spiritual reality in their life. David wants to restore the ark to a place of central authority and worship. And the people had no place of central worship and authority. And so David knew that the ark belonged in the city. And David also knew that the ark was holy. But he makes a tragic mistake. He puts it on the cart. In other words, I need you to think this through. He places the ark on a cart, which is the Philistine way of doing things. Have you ever heard the expression, you know, why should we have to reinvent the wheel? Well, the problem is God had a very specific instruction on how the ark should be moved. David broke the rules, the precepts. Now think this through. David is trying to be pragmatic. David is trying to be, as a matter of fact, modern in his technology. David has to transport it 8.3 miles. As a matter of fact, why not use wheels? Why not get the ark as quickly as possible to Jerusalem to as many people as possible? Rules, schmools. Badges? We don't need no stinking badge. Think about what David is doing. He wants to do the right thing. But he's willing to do it the wrong way. Have you ever wanted to do the right thing? But you were willing to take a shortcut? Do it in a way that was not honoring and not pleasing to God? And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Aiah went before the ark. Then in verse 5, then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on strings, instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, on cymbals, on donnert, on blitzen, on, on and on and on. Now think about this. David says, break out the band and start. The celebration. You've heard it. Musica. Maestro. 
We are going to have a party. He's rejoicing. He's celebrating because the ark is going back to where it belongs. And then there's an accident. Look what it says. And when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and they took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. They're traveling on the cart. It hits a bump. Uzzah reaches out to steady the cart. He places his hand on the sacred object to keep it from falling. And that's all he did. Reflexes or disobedience? What do you think? Probably more reflex than disobedience. If you saw the ark falling, wouldn't you rather try and catch it than have it bend or break? Wouldn't you try to reach out and save it? But David disobeyed God in the way that the ark was being transported. David broke the rules. And you might think, why is this such a big deal? Fast forward a thousand years. To the time of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And all of a sudden he ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit come is outpoured on the church. And all of a sudden there is this vital, vibrant outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And people are rejoicing and they're sharing and they're, they're singing and they're rejoicing. And Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and keep back part of it for themselves, but decide to lie about it to the apostles and they're struck dead on the spot. They presumed on the Lord. They didn't take God seriously and Uzzah touched something that he wasn't supposed to touch. A non-Levite was not supposed to touch this article of furniture. The Levites were supposed to transport the ark by using the poles and the rings. Alan Redpath writes, quote, The ark was nothing less than the burden of the Lord, and the burden of the Lord was to be carried on the hearts of the Levites. Four priest drive, not David automatic. Now again, we think carefully. David was practical, he's pragmatic, he's sensible, he's reasonable. But for whatever reason, he didn't obey God. You know, some stupid person once said, Do something. Do anything. Even if it's wrong. If you hear anyone say that, do something, anything, even if it's wrong, you say, you're an idiot. It's a bad idea. It's not a good idea to do what's wrong. Do nothing until it's right. And then do it with all your might. Someone else said, you've probably said this, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. David wants to get the ark to Jerusalem pronto. He wants to get God's presence in Jerusalem, A-S-A-P. Who cares how he does it? God cares. 
And that's the first key concept. God cares about the details, even if you don't. God cares about the fine print, even if you don't. You don't know how many cards and letters I get on my radio program that try to tell me, well, I don't understand. What, how can God be angry when people find true love? How can God give a prohibition against certain kinds of sexual behavior? How could God do such a thing? Why would God want to rob somebody of joy and peace or privilege? Guess what? God cares about the details. He cares about the details. You probably heard the expression, the devil is in the details, but it's not true. The details are the very specific instructions that God has given to us in the Bible to help you think things through. And I know many of you have all kinds of problems. You have mental problems or emotional problems or spiritual problems or relational problems or, or financial problems. You have problems, problems, and more problems. And you know what? It's not wrong to have problems. And it's not wrong to have needs. But the challenge for us is to read the fine print and begin to ask and answer this question. God, help me think about the details as I'm trying to deal with a particular problem. Who cares about the way we do it? God cares. God cares about how you approach him and speak to him. God cares about the presence or the absence of sin in our lives. God, and this is going to shock you, it's going to surprise you, it may even annoy you. God kills Uzzah so David would learn a lesson. And you're, I know what you're thinking. He would do that? God would kill someone just so I could learn a lesson? The lesson isn't just for David. The lesson is for you, and it's for me. Does God allow his own son, Jesus Christ, to be killed? It isn't just about learning a lesson. It's about a sacrifice. God cares about the details, and when we care about the details God cares about, we can experience joy and peace. And this is the idea. God killed Uzzah so that you would begin to understand something that was very, very important and very, very critical when it comes to having a right relationship with God and Christ, and that is Things that are important to God, things that are holy to God are important. And this is one of the lessons that each and every one of us need to learn. And look what it says in verse 8. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Now think about it. Uzzah is dead. David is mad. And David is standing beside the dead body of Uzzah. And David's mad at God. And God is angry with David. Now, in a fight of displeasure, who do you suppose is going to win? You know, it really, it, I've heard people preach, 
You know, it's okay to get mad at God. He's a big enough God. He understands. That is a wicked thing to say. It's a wicked thing to say because it implies that God is wicked or evil or wrong and that somehow we are justified in our anger towards God. Some man after God's own heart, you are, David. Here you are in chapter 6, angry with God. But I got to tell you something. I suspect... David is also a little bit angry with himself, don't you? He's angry. He doesn't exactly understand what's happening. He has to come to grips with the fact that he has insulted God's holiness. David isn't perfect, yet David remains a man after God's own heart. How? Because he's sensitive. And I suspect that, again, he is open and willing to try and understand what is happening even at this moment. And this is why David is a man after God's own heart, because he's willing to face up to the fact that something, something is terribly and horribly wrong with what he's doing. He is willing to discover what went wrong and fix the problem. Is that what you do? When you find yourself in a situation where clearly God isn't happy with what you're saying or what you're doing. Are you willing to go, I need to actually open up my Bible and see what God has to say about the problem that I am dealing with. I need to discover what went wrong and fix the problem. Is that what you do when you have a problem? Do you go, Lord, clearly something is wrong here. You know, we always get into trouble when we fail to do our homework. When we're faced with a problem, an issue, and we fail to ask the most important question that could possibly be asked. What does God's word have to say about my problem? What does God's word have to say about this issue, about anger, or about the situation that I find myself in my marriage or in my job, about the relationships? What does the word of God have to say about the problem that I'm facing? What is the precept and the principle? What does God's word say about premarital sex, about drunkenness, about impurity, about gluttony and immorality? On my radio program, this guy calls me up and he goes, hey, my friend just moved in with his girl girlfriend and then he told me that it's not wrong it's it's okay can you share with me some scriptures to help me understand what's going on and I said on the program the word the two little words you're looking for are sexual immorality go to your concordance look up the words sexual immorality because remember what sexual immorality is it's any kind of sexual contact outside of marriage on Sundays we read in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 to abstain from sexual immorality the Bible says over and over again flee sexual immorality the Bible says please please avoid sexual immorality because it's the only kind of sin that you use your own body as the instrument in order to commit the crime 
Well, it doesn't really matter. It's not hurting anybody else. The Bible says we being many are one body. We're joined and we're fitted together. When you use your body to commit a crime against God and against the church, even though you may think it doesn't matter to anyone else, that maybe only God is looking, but the person in the church, it doesn't need to be found out because it's really not hurting anybody. You couldn't be more wrong. God has spoken about worship. He's spoken about discipleship. He's spoken about how we're to to conduct ourselves in our family and, and deal with our rebellious children. The Bible has spoken on a number of different issues. The Bible has told us how to repent of our sin and to forsake our sin and to embrace the Jesus of the Bible. Check God's word before you make your decision to buy or sell or give or take. Look up the precept, the rule. Look up the principle, the guideline. And then ask yourself this very simple question. What does the Bible tell me to do in the particular situation that I find myself? It says in verse 9 that David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me, it's actually a very good pre- question. You know, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me in the sense of how can I successfully transport this holy piece of furniture to the place where it belongs so that I can honor God? David is afraid. This, again, is going to come as a shock and a surprise to some of you. That's a good thing. It's a good thing sometimes that you're afraid. It's a good thing when you look both ways before you cross the street. Isn't that what you taught your children? Why do you do such a thing? Hopefully it's so that they won't get smashed. We sometimes need to live in a world where we fear the Lord. Now, again, I'm talking about the reverential awe that comes from a person who says, I don't want to do something that's going to offend God. I don't want to do something that's going to hurt the heart of God. What is it that I should do? Now, think about verse 10 where it says, So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. Good thing the last time he tried to move it, somebody died. David needs to figure out what to do in the situation. And so they put the ark into the home of a man named Obed, Edom. It says, but David took it aside into the house of Obed, Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed, Edom, the Gittite, three months or 90 days. And look what it says. And the Lord blessed Obed, Edom, And all of his household. Now, for a little bit better idea of what's going on, turn to 1 Chronicles, just after Kings is Chronicles. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, just very quickly. I want you to either make a note to read verses 1 through 13 when you have a chance. 
But it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God. He pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God, to minister before him forever. You know what happened? David looked it up in the Bible. He looked it up in the Bible and he said... We've made a terrible mistake. We wanted to do what's right, but we did it the wrong way. And it says, And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Koath, Uriel, the chief, and 120 of his brethren, the sons of Merari, Aziah, the chief, and 220 of his brethren, the sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, and 130 of his brethren, of the sons of Elizaphan, Shemaiah, the chief, and 200 of his brethren, and the sons of Ebron, Elel, the chief, and 80 of his brethren, and the sons of Uzael, Abinadab, the chief, and 112 of his brethren. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Aziah, Joel, Shemaiah, Elel, and Abinadab. Then he said to them, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God, Israel, to the place I've prepared for it. For For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel and the children of the the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Does it matter? That you do God's will, God's way? The answer is yes. And see, now here's the idea. He, he places it in this particular home. And all of a sudden, blessing begins to erupt when you're willing to do God's will, God's way. Guess what happens? The fruit of doing God's will, God's way is joy and blessing. So what happened? David figured it out. He searched the scriptures and the Lord revealed to him the truth. Here's what he did. Heavenly Father, does your word have anything to say about the heavenly furniture? Oh, yeah. Does the Bible have something to say about your marriage, about your children, about your job? Does the Bible have something to say about how to enjoy friendship and relationship with God through Christ? Someone must have pointed the passage out to David in Numbers. And before David had not searched the scriptures, he just went ahead and he did whatever he thought God wanted him to do. And some of you have done exactly that. You've cried out to God and you said, God, you know my heart. You know, I was just trying to do what was right. Yeah, it's true. I, I understand that. I'm willing to even concede that. 
But here's what I'm not willing to do. I'm not willing to change my mind concerning my will and my way. Your whole life will be spent in one of two ways. Coming to God on God's terms or coming to God on your own terms. You know what? It's when we fail to search the scriptures, when we rush out and we do something just because we feel like it, that's when we get burned. How can transporting the Ark of the Covenant be meaningful in our lives? One of the most simple and basic things that I can share with you tonight is to serve God in the details. I know what you're thinking. Well, it's the details that drive me crazy. We don't want to go to all the trouble and inconvenience of doing God's will God's way. Look, I'm an American. I'm pragmatic. Look, what he cares about is just this vague, simple, you know, if we can get sort of on the same page, it doesn't really matter. It's close enough for government work. See, you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. God's work isn't government work. There's so many people who want to come to God. But they don't want to come to God on God's terms. Let's just all love Jesus and let bygones be bygones. Wrong. God cares about the details. Now remember, even though you may not be able to tell from just looking at verse 11. But Obed-Edom the Gittite was a descendant of Korite. Or Koathite. In other words, his home is the priestly line. Now this is wise on David's part. David doesn't go, I'm the new king and I'm going to do what I want. After all, God has anointed me to be the king. David knows the God of heaven is the God of heaven. All he is is a mere king. Philip Keller writes, all the planning, all the programs, all the praise and dramatic displays of man's devising comes to nothing if there's not a clear compliance with the Father's will and instructions before us. But guess what? Obedience brings joy. And disobedience brings emptiness, barrenness. Possibly even death. Obey God, have joy. Disobey God, be miserable. Look what it says in verse 13. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted calf. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Six steps. Two, three, four, five, six. Six steps. Burn the cow. Offer the sacrifice. Six steps. Burn the cow. Offer the sacrifice. Six steps. Offer the cow. Burn the sacrifice. Wow, at this rate, we're never going to get to Jerusalem. I know what you're thinking. At this rate, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Gino, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, I'll never get through the Bible. Six steps. Kill the cow. Offer the sacrifice. Do you understand what's happening? 
If you read the Bible one chapter at a time, you're going to eventually read the whole Bible. Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. Find a way to listen or read. Find a way to get the Bible inside of you. Do it somehow. Go to the website. Download it on your MP3 player. Look at whatever device that you want to. Listen to quality Bible teachers. Do what is necessary, but I want you to think about what's happening. God is teaching David a lesson. That in order to get to Jerusalem, it's going to involve worship and sacrifice. You may see, take six steps and kill a cow. But I see... Slowly but surely go in the direction that God has called you. Worship him. Sacrifice. And then go forward. Go in the direction that God has called you to. Worship and sacrifice. And then go in the direction that God has called you to. Look what it says. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the, the voice of, of the trumpet. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark. In verse 16. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looking through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Now, when David is doing this little dance, some have suggested that David was dancing in his underwear. It's not true. David has taken off his royal robes. He wants nothing to detract from the presence of the Lord and the word of God, in this case, the Ark of the Covenant. And David simply dressed in the plain white robe, a simple servant's tunic underneath. David's point in dressing this way is because he's David, he's God's servant. He wants to be seen as God's servant. He's not dancing in his underwear like some crazy Pentecostal who, whose heart has gone on fire. He's not swinging from the chandeliers or, or foaming at the mouth. His dance is a dance of freedom and it's a dance of joy. He is dancing because guess what has happened? Obedience has brought joy and freedom. Obedience and sacrifice and worship has brought joy and obedience. I can't even begin to tell you how important this is. Why is David so happy? You know, what about your dead friend Uzzah? Have you forgotten about him? I got to tell you why. Because he's free. He's free. When we disobey, we're in bondage. But David did what God required. David took the ark. Here's what he did. He took the ark and he was willing to carry the ark the way that God wanted it carried. The burden was on the priest's shoulder. It was slow going. It was a difficult process. Stop. Worship. Sacrifice. Go forward. Stop. Worship. Sacrifice. Go forward. And it is difficult. To get up every morning and pray. And to open up your Bible. It is difficult to make time to go to church. It's difficult 
to fulfill the ministry that God has placed in your life. It is difficult to make time for sacrifice and to make time for worship. It's slow going. And when you study the Bible the way I study the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, it may take you a whole lifetime. You might be thinking, I don't have enough time. I know. It's, some of you have a really late start. Once David understood that the transportation of the ark of God was more than just a religious ritual. That sacrifice and worship was necessary. You need to understand something that the sacrifice and worship isn't just simply the sacrifice and worship. It's the mechanism that God has designed for the release of guilt and sin in your life. Because the chances are you've done wicked things things and wrong things and stupid things and people have been hurt and God is willing for the disobedience to run its course to teach you a lesson but now all of a sudden David has found forgiveness and David has found restoration and David has found release of sin and guilt and regret and remorse and he's able to rejoice before the Lord. Haven't you ever wondered, how can I make the guilty thing inside of me go away? How can I make the wickedness go away? How can I make the regret go away? How can I make all of the weird and wrong and wicked things that I've done, how can I make them go away? The Ark of the Covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus has released you from the obligation of sin. David is forgiven and joy. He's experiencing repentance. He's experiencing release from his anger and his fear. He's experiencing forgiveness because the God that he offended is now Willing to do what is necessary because David is willing to do what's necessary. You know what the world will try to convince you? That the devil is in the details and that it doesn't matter and that the Bible doesn't matter and your prayer life doesn't matter and your fellowship doesn't matter and you couldn't be more wrong. On a TV program many years ago, there was a character played by Callista Flockhart. I don't know if you know her, but she had a program many years ago called Allie McBeal. And there was an episode that I remember when I was preparing this. She was grief-stricken and, and, and guilt-stricken over the fact that she had made out with her boss on the job. Her ex-boyfriend was now her boss, and she felt guilty. She felt like she had violated the commandment not to cover your neighbor's spouse. She knew it was wrong. And in this film, she goes to see the local pastor. And as she goes to see the local pastor, she wants to confess her sin. And the pastor says, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't really break the commandment, thou shalt not covet, he says. And she gets to the place in the Bible where she goes, well, what, you know, what did Jesus mean when he said, even if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery? And the pastor said, Jesus was off base on that one. I wanted to throw a rock through the TV. Now think about this for just a minute. 
A TV pastor is telling a guilt-ridden woman who's just made out with her boss that her sin doesn't really matter. Your sin doesn't really matter. God knows you're a sinner. He knows you're wicked. He knows you're weird. He knows you're going to make mistakes. Your sin doesn't matter. But the cross of Jesus is the one thing that reminds us that our sin matters. David's rejoicing. Obedience has brought blessing and joy. And he wants to share that joy with his own household. And look what it says. It says, Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And by the way, these are fellowship offerings. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed among the people, among the whole multitude, women and men, everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, cake of raisins. So all the people departed. In other words, this act of sacrifice, this act of joy, it, 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 there's this outpouring of worship. There's an outpouring of blessing. Everyone, everyone is happy. They're happy about David's freedom. Except for one person. There will always be two kinds of people in your life. Those who are happy about your freedom and those who aren't happy about your freedom. (laughs) They're going to be more happy about sarcasm and put down and pressure These are the things that rob joy. You've turned from your sin. You've turned to the Savior. You're willing to do God's will, God's way. You want to do what's right. And then someone comes along in your life and says, you're such a fool. Look at what what a crazy person you are, carrying your Bible around, going praise the Lord. Do you realize how stupid you sound? Now guess what? All of these things are intended to rob your joy. And what a tragedy. Michael's clearly unhappy in her marriage with David. And she says, Then David returned to bless his own household. So he blesses the people, then he blesses his home. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of the servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. In other words, she's accusing him of flashing. Now, I know at first response, David's response seems foolish, maybe even childish. I know you are, but what am I? But it's really way more than that. David doesn't allow Michael's sarcasm to bury his joy. He responds with a little sarcasm of his own. And he basically says, look... How glorious was the king of Israel. And then in verse 21, so David said, it was before the Lord. 
who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the Lord, over the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Here's what he's willing to say. No matter how low I have to go, no matter how humble I have to be, no matter how foolish it looks, I'm going to obey God. And she, of course, is barren. Now, perhaps she was barren because she refused joy. That's always been my experience. When a person doesn't want joy, when a person doesn't want peace, when a person doesn't want forgiveness, when a person doesn't want to walk in humility before the Lord, invariably they're going to live in their own private desert for the rest of their lives. Michael was more concerned about what other people thought than what God thought. And by the way, if you're still in a place in your life where you care more about what people think than what God thinks then you still may be facing a few barren days yourself. You know, in the book Alice in Wonderland, the King of Hearts asks Alice, Don't you care about what people think? And Alice responds, It doesn't matter what other people think when you know you're right. It doesn't matter what Michael thinks. David knows something. He knows that doing God's will, God's way, will result in joy. He knows that doing God's will, God's way, you can experience forgiveness and mercy and peace and love. The next time you ask yourself the question, what does God want me to do? Do yourself a favor. Close your eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, what does the Bible have to say about my problem? What are the precepts? What are the principles that will lead me and guide me in making a choice that's going to be honoring and pleasing to you? The reason why God gives us the details is because he cares about the details. And that's why I teach you verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we know that you care about the details. That's why you gave us the details. Lord, we know that you care about the details because you created a mechanism where they could be written down and preserved. Lord, you decided to preserve the details so that we would be aware of them. Lord, we know that there are specific rules like stay off the grass. And Lord, we hope and pray that when we read the rule that says stay off the grass, that that's exactly what we'll do. Lord, help us to not be so much concerned with the fine print in other people's lives, but rather with the fine print in our own life. 
Lord, we pray that we would take criticism graciously. And every single thing that's true, Lord, that we would be willing to change it. And everything that's false, Lord, that we would be willing to reject it. Lord, create within us a mechanism where we will care more about what you think than what other people think. In Jesus' name.